Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we, um, we thank you for this glorious Lord's Day. Thank you for uh, bringing us uh, together, Lord, and I thank you for, uh, Lord, the fact that we can assemble around your word and that we can be taught by you and that we can encourage one another and teach one another, Lord, that we can admonish and encourage one another. And we just pray, God, that you would lead us in a righteous way. And Father, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. And and uh, help us, Lord, to understand the faith, Lord, once for all delivered to the saints. Help us to have a, a greater grasp, Lord, on what your word teaches um, regarding Christology and everything that we've been studying here lately. We thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us, Lord. Bless our time. Bless our study now. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're uh, continuing on with uh, the doctrine of Christology, and we've been talking about systematic theology, of course, and uh, Christology obviously is a, a lengthy section uh, for systematic theology, and uh, last week we looked at the atonement, and so obviously when you're talking about the atonement, you're talking about the death of Christ, right? We looked at the... Um, we looked at the nature of the atonement. We looked at the, uh, the historical background of the atonement. We looked at the extent of the atonement. We looked at a lot of different theological points for the atonement. And obviously, if the atonement is about the death of Christ, well, then what happens after the death of Christ is the resurrection. The resurrection. Okay. One S or two S? You guys help me out. Okay, how many say it's two? <laughs> how many say it's one? <laughs> so, I never spelled correctly that much. Okay, so the resurrection is a fascinating uh, doctrine of Scripture. Um, I've already given it away, but maybe a fact that perhaps you did not know. But what is the central doctrine of the early church as conveyed in the book of Acts? When you think of what was the doctrine that the early church was preaching, more than any other doctrine in the early church, uh, it was not justification, it was not predestination, it was not election, it was not the atonement, it was none of these things, it was none other than the resurrection. The resurrection was the pivotal point of all of uh, apostolic preaching. And uh, the reason for that is because what the apostles were trying to convey is that God had fulfilled all of his promises that he had made to his people and regarding his servant David, which, of course, David then, uh, if you look at places like Acts chapter 2, uh, David is going to take on, if you would, typological significance, and Christ fulfills many of the, uh, many of the things that are spoken about David there. Um, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that both he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ uh, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And so that is referencing Psalm 16. Isn't that magnificent? 
the apostles are looking back at Psalm 16, ultimately as typologically fulfilled in Christ. And what you find that is over and over and over in the book of Acts. So what does that mean for the doctrine of the resurrection? It means that the doctrine of the resurrection is basically the high point in redemptive history. And so you have different epochs of redemptive history. You have God working through a flood. You have God working through the exodus. You have God working uh, with the, the, the captivity and the exile of his people, the building of the temple. All of these uh, uh, incredible high points in the, the, the history of redemption. But the uh, resurrection is the climax of it. It is the fulfillment of all of these Davidic promises and much, much more. Um, when we talk about the resurrection, of course, a lot of times we're thinking about um, the historical aspect of the resurrection. That's really, really where we should start. Uh, turn with me to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen. Our church does a lot of evangelism, and we're uh, we do a lot of evangelism at the campus of uh, UNT, University of North Texas, and we talk to a lot of students. And one of the things that they want to talk about is historical claims. They want to ask us questions about the historical Jesus. They want to ask us questions about the tenacity of Scripture. They want to ask us about the reliability of the Bible. They want to ask us for proof of the claims that we're making to them. And one of the central claims of Christianity, of course, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, but the question is this, is when we're in an encounter with people, for me, the big question is this, do we set aside the Bible as a historically reliable document, right? Because what people uh, usually engage uh, Christians in is in apologetics and evangelism is, you know, uh, prove that Jesus rose from the dead. And a lot of times they're asking for some sort of historical, you know, they've been watching too much A&E, they've been watching too much History Channel, and they've got a lot of liberalism floating around in their minds. And whenever you quote the scripture and say, well, the Bible says, then immediately what the skeptic or the, the unbeliever will tell you is, well, that's because that's in the Bible, right? But what does that counter-argument assume? You know, it assumes that the Bible is not a historically reliable document and that we are not allowed to, to quote it, right? So the very first thing about the resurrection is to know that we don't set aside the historicity of the Bible. We don't set aside the Bible, right? Um, I heard someone say once, you know, I'm not going to set aside the Bible so that you can become more comfortable in your unbelief, <laughs> you know. So we don't set this aside, and this is why. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we are told, according to the authority of Scripture, that the apostles, watch this, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but, watch this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so here you have a historical claim by a historical figure, i.e. Peter, saying we weren't following mythology. We weren't just following folklore. We were following the things that we saw firsthand as eyewitnesses. And so as believers, we do not have the right uh, to set that historical uh, claim aside, right? We don't have the right to set the Bible aside so that people will become more comfortable 
in their unbelief, right? What does uh, what does Peter go on to say? Oh, where's that verse? If you're in First Peter, go to First Peter, uh, for example, just to kind of give the pecking order for evangelism. First Peter chapter three, beginning of verse fifteen. First Peter chapter three, beginning of verse fifteen. It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. But notice what comes first, right? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. In other words, this could be called the attendant circumstance of evangelism. But the, the circumstance is that first the believer is to set apart Christ as holy in his heart. So the very first thing that we do in any evangelistic encounter is submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ and then give a defense. <laughs> but much evangelism and a lot of apologetics today is done in the opposite fashion. You know, you, how many of you guys heard that movie, uh, God's Not Dead? Did you guys hear about that movie coming out? That movie, uh, there was some good in it, some bad, some really bad. <laughs> but the bad, one of the bad parts about it is just the, the whole premise of the movie. God is not dead, and uh, the film, the way that it unravels, is that college students are going to put God on trial and determine whether or not he exists. Is there something wrong with that? <laughs> uh, yeah, God is not on trial, <laughs> right? It's like, our, it's like C.S. Lewis said, you know, God is in the dock, right? We're, 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 we're the judges in the bench. So we have to flip that scenario around, right? Especially with our historical claims and with the authority of Scripture, what we're saying is God is not on trial. We do not preside over him to determine whether or not God exists, okay? That would not be sanctifying God in your heart as holy. That would be putting God aside, and wondering whether he is holy. But that's not what the Bible directs us to do. So we do not lay aside the historical claims of the Bible when we talk about the resurrection. So when we look at the resurrection accounts, and you can, I'm not going to go through all of these, but uh, you know all the various accounts that describe the resurrection. Uh, but let's get into something else. Let's get into the nature of the resurrection. The nature of the, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the nature of the resurrection? When Jesus was raised from the dead, what was the significance of that? And what is the nature of that? Well, theologians have pointed out um, that the resurrection is not just Jesus coming back from the dead, but he serves, right? He serves as a eschatological point of interest for his people. Let me explain what I mean by that. Obviously, what is eschatology? What is eschatology, Felix? The end time. Very good. So it has to do with last things, right? End time. So we're looking at the future. So Jesus is a point of interest for us, his resurrection of the future. And of course, I'm referring to the fact that scripture calls him the first fruits, right? The first fruits. You ever wonder why God made the people of God in the Old Testament, let's say in Leviticus, why he made them uh, set aside the first fruits and honor the first fruits? And what is all the ritual about in Leviticus and in other places of the law? Well, it is not, as Calvin said, it is not just sport. 
In other words, God is just not making people go through exercises for no reason. <laughs> every symbol, every ritual, every part of the Old Testament cultus has a point. And now we know <laughs> what the first fruits was signifying is that the first fruits were indicative of the fact that there's a great harvest coming, right? And that's why you were to set aside the first fruits. You were symbol, it was symbolic of the fact that harvest time is coming. So when Jesus rose from the dead, and in 1 Corinthians 15, let's say, verse 20, where he is repeatedly called the first fruits, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And again in verse 23, each one in his order, Christ, the first fruits. Now he's, it brings in what's known as an articular, right? Uh, the first fruits. So symbolizing that this is a technical term now for the resurrection of Christ. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So the resurrection was not just Jesus coming back from the dead. The resurrection was Jesus indicating that a greater resurrection is coming. And so that is uh, the prophetic aspect of the resurrection. Um, talking about the nature of the resurrection, um, we have to talk about the resurrection body of Christ. Uh, you know, we're told in Luke, for example, we're told in Luke, one of my favorite passages, the road to Emmaus, where the disciples are conversing with Jesus, and uh, Jesus is telling them how that all the Old Testament basically is typological of him. And um, it says that while he was kind of inquiring about why they were so downcast and all these things, remember, it says in Luke 24, 16, that their eyes were kept from seeing Christ. Very interesting phrase. Somehow, supernaturally, God forbade these men from recognizing the risen Christ. And it's just remarkable. And then in Luke 24, 31, we are told that the, 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 the eyes of the disciples are then opened so that they can recognize Christ. Very, very uh, significant because, you know, even in his resurrected form, Jesus is teaching. Jesus is, uh, he has a purpose. Um, he conceals himself and he reveals himself for the reason of teaching them a faith lesson, something that they need to learn. Um, also, you have instances where, let's say, the disciples are going to the tomb, and the women go to the tomb, and it's early. It says in uh, John 20, verse 1, that when the women went to the tomb, it was so early, it was still dark, right? I had a little bit of trouble sleeping last night, so I was up in the morning while it was still dark. And if you were in my backyard fooling around, I probably wouldn't recognize you, right? Uh, same thing with Jesus. They went to the tomb, and they did not recognize him. Uh, but finally, they turned and they saw him. They realized that he was more than a gardener. So, do we have any questions about the physical body of Jesus, about the resurrected uh, body of Jesus? Because there is, a, there is another aspect of this that's important, and that's the historical background of the New Testament. Uh, I've pointed out before that there were a couple philosophies that were floating around in the early church. Right? For example, there was the Gnostics, right? And there were the Docetists, right? Docetism. And you remember, I made a lot out of this because uh, what Gnosticism, which comes from, from Plato's philosophy, that's an A, 
that's a peach. So <laughs> Gnosticism stemming from, pl from, from Platonism, uh, what that is teaching is essentially a dichotomy between the, the world of ideas, right, and the material world. The material world. And basically what Plato asserted was that uh, the, the ideal state, the state of the spirit, the soul, the metaphysical aspect of reality cannot in any way have any commingling with the material world because the material world is essentially evil. And so, because of this dichotomy, you gave birth to something like docetism, which docetism believed in the Christ figure, but they also believed that because of this platonic reality that governed the thinking of most people, okay, it would be like, I don't know, I'm not good at, I'm not good at illustrations, you know. Uh, it would be basically like in the 21st century. We are told that, you know, vaccines are just good for us. You know, we got to go take them. I mean, it's just, we don't even think about it, right? Well, some people, some people, they're all into, you know, don't take vaccines, they're going to kill you. But, okay, and if you're there, fine. But let's rewind 20 years or whatever. When everybody just took their kids in to get vaccinated, right, for the flu shot or whatever, right? It's it just kind of a, a, a societal consensus, and that's basically what happened in, the, in the, the time of the early church. There was a societal consensus that the immaterial world was superior to the material world, and therefore they, these two had no contact. And as a result of that, docetism comes from the Greek word... Oh boy, I, I mixed Greek with English, sorry. <laughs> I'm still doing it, it's hard. Dokeo. Dokeo is the Greek word that means to seem, right? To seem. So what are they saying? What this is saying is that when Jesus was here, both in his earthly ministry and then consequently in his resurrection, that it only seemed as if he was physically among us and that he was really in reality something like a phantasm. He was like a spirit being walking around but he only seemed to be there, right? Um, of course, this is not what the Bible teaches, <laughs> right? The Bible teaches very plainly that Jesus had flesh and bones after the resurrection. Luke 24, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. That's amazing. Remember that. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. So this is, this is Jesus telling the apostles, touch me and see me. Right? And when you get to 1 John chapter 1, consequently you find an apostle saying what? Beginning in verse 1, 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and that's exactly what Jesus told them to say, to, to do, see, right? Touch me and see. What we have looked at, what we touched with our hands. You see that? And the Greek word there is to handle. It, 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 uh, it carries with it uh, something of the connotation of investigation. Is, is this real? What? They actually touched him. The purpose is, could it be? Could it be that he's 
risen from the dead. And so they touched him so as to see if the physical body of Jesus was real. And in fact, he was. He was not just a spirit being. Um, we have some interesting accounts of, um, of Jesus appearing in his appearance. Um, for example, if you look at Luke chapter 24, verse 31, Luke chapter 24, verse 31, um, <clears throat> we are told there, a very interesting point there, if you want to know where Star Trek got the concept of, of being you know, beamed up, right? <laughs> no, that's a joke, but just follow me here for a second. It says in Luke 24, 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Think of the antithesis there. They, their eyes were open, so they fully recognized him. And, and watch this, they're plural, all of them together, right? And they recognized him. It was, in fact, Jesus. But then it says, he vanished from their sight. And so what you have after the resurrection is Jesus appearing and disappearing at will whenever he wanted to. And then, you know, some theologians have contrived ideas of, well, how could that be? You know, uh, how about Acts, where he just appears in their midst, right? They're in the upper room, and he just, he just appears to them, right? Uh, well, well, we're also told in Acts chapter 8 that the Spirit of God snatched Philip away. And so, almost like a, don't, you know, don't laugh, but almost kind of like a mini rapture, you know what I mean? People, I'm the only one laughing. But, you know, it's like a mini rapture. I mean, it's just like God just whisked Philip away. Um, and the reason why this is important is that Jesus just um, corporeally, his body, his physical body, appeared and then it disappeared and went somewhere else. Um, because some theologians have uh, tried to teach the idea that Jesus' body had different properties and that it was really immaterial property and that's why he was able to vanish. Well, the Bible says nothing about the immaterial property of his body. It just says he vanished. And so this is, a, this is an act that his physical body performed, which is amazing. It's remarkable to us. So that's a little bit about the nature of the resurrection and why these things are important. You know, this stuff you would think, oh, this is so ancient. This goes back, you know, thousands of years or whatnot. This goes all the way to the early church. But I tell you what, these concepts are still important. They are still important. People want to minimize the historical Jesus. Whenever you minimize the historical Jesus, your only option, whether you go into liberalism or whether you go into mythology, your only option is that you end up somewhere along these lines, these Gnostic type of lines. And... Um, so it's important to know the consequence of ideas and the origin of ideas together. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, um, who is responsible for, for raising Jesus from the dead? Did Jesus raise himself from the dead? Wally, I see that hand. Oh, okay. The Trinity. I was going to say, the, um, it refers to the, correct me if I'm wrong, but all three of members of the Trinity are referred to raising Jesus from the dead, because Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. 
Okay, so there's proof but that Jesus a, says he rose himself. If I thought about it for long enough, well, I could probably come up with the other two. Well, think fast. <laughs> Where does the Father raise Jesus from the dead? Okay. Very good. God raised him up. How about Galatians chapter 1, verse 1? And the Apostle Paul says, uh, well, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right? So the Father raised the Son from the dead just as much as the Son rose himself from the dead. Think, think about the implications of that. And Jesus rose himself from the dead. And the passage that I have is out of John, uh, John 10, verse 17, where Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus had inherent authority to take up his own life, to resurrect, to give himself life, to come back from the grave in resurrected form. This is just remarkable. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, because a lot of times um, we may say, okay, well, yeah, the Son rose himself from the dead, the Father rose the Son from the dead, but what about the Spirit? Where does the Spirit raise Jesus from the dead. There's another verse that comes close to explicitly saying this, and I'm going to ask you if you know where it is, but here is Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there you have a reference to the Spirit of God through which Jesus is purported from being raised from the dead. So the Spirit definitely involved. Is there any other place where the Spirit is involved in resurrection language? Can you think of any? I'll give you a clue. It's in Romans. You don't got to go far. That's <laughs> a, a difficult question. You have to really know Romans, right? It is in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, at the very beginning there, we have an interesting phrase, right? We have an interesting phrase. <clears throat> Romans 1 verse 4. Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. So there, the spirit of holiness, we can say the resurrection was in keeping with what the spirit does, with the Holy Spirit. He rose his son because he was holy. The spirit is holy, and the Holy Spirit rose the holy son. Um, just an interesting implication. Now, how many doctrines do you think the resurrection, how many doctrines do you think the resurrection Effects. I'll give you one. Right. There's Christology. That's what we're studying, right? So the resurrection has direct effect upon Christology. Anything else? Soteriology. Okay, soteriology. 
eschatology. Why, John, before we move forward? Why eschatology? Well, hold on a second. Uh, Chris, why soteriology? Um, because it says in, uh, was it 1 Corinthians? What is soteriology? Uh, the doctrine of salvation. Correct. And so, without the resurrection, uh, Paul says we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. So it's absolutely necessary. Okay. All right. Okay. We're going we're gonna to come back to this in a minute, but... John, uh, why I say, eschatology? I was going to say similar to what he said. Without the resurrection, without the resurrection from the dead, you can't prove anything. That our our faith rests in vain. And so, if Christ isn't didn't do what he said he did by coming back from the dead, then our eschatology is all out of whack because that throws off our eschatology, our personal eschatology, to what happens to us individually uh, at the end time. Okay, so our individual resurrection, right? Our future, our future personal eschatology. You know, some have called it. Is there any other aspects of theology that's affected by the resurrection? Okay, explain before I write that down there, because that's not my notes. <laughs> I'd say if he didn't raise from the dead, then he's not God. Oh, wow. Okay, I won't, I won't debate that. <laughs> okay, so theology proper. So theology proper just refers to when you're doing theology um, on God himself, because the word theology means the study of God. So, any other aspects of theology affected by the resurrection? I don't know um, what the what theology term is, but uh, <laughs> uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. Okay. Because it's it's so prophetic, you know, obviously being prophesied in the right in the Old Testament. So. Okay. Right. So prophecy, typology, those types of things. Okay. So your hermeneutics. It affects your hermeneutics. And just on a personal note, like apologetical, it's an apologetical issue as well because from an evident from an evidentiary standpoint, you could say he rose from the dead and it was seen by hundreds of people and you know it strengthens your faith and that kind of thing. Right. Yes, yeah. And that yeah, makes so it unique out of any other religion. That's right. That's right. And so it affects everything, doesn't it? I mean it affects we could even go on. Uh, anthropology, right? What is anthropology? The study of man. Uh, it, it, it has direct effect on who we are, how we view ourselves, what's going to happen to us, you know? Uh, the reason why I'm personally against cremation is because of my resurrection hope. And that's been kind of, you know, that's been the history and that's been the legacy of the people of God that we don't burn the body because we believe that we will resurrect the body one day. It's sort of symbolic of the sanctity of the body. Um, but it also speaks of the fact that, you know, our body is going to be changed. And so the nature of man is going to change at the resurrection. We are going to be, right, to start a kind of connect theology, we are going to be glorified, right? We're going to be glorified. Uh, so it, it affects everything. It really does. So let's, let's begin to kind of zero in a little bit closer uh, while we still have a little time. Let's go back to soteriology and deal with some of the aspects of how the resurrection affects our soteriology. So the first one would be, let's say, uh, regeneration. Okay, Regeneration. What is regeneration? I'm sorry, I don't mean to just assume everybody knows what these terms are. What is regeneration, uh, K-Dub? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. 
understand um, the beauty of God and you know, helping them believe. Yeah, so I think the key word that you say there is awakening, mm-hmm. right? Um, to be made alive, to be born again. These are synonymous with regeneration, okay? Um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. If we take regeneration to be synonymous with the new birth, then we have a statement here by Peter that says the new birth is a cause and effect, cause and effect connected to the resurrection. It's amazing. Right. First Peter chapter one verse three, blessed be the God and Father. Remember, we preach. I preached through this um, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Think of the sovereignty implications of that verse. Caused us to be born again. It's called a divine passive to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Um, How? Why? How does this work? How is it that the resurrection of Jesus results in our regeneration? Why? Uh, It it, it follows closely on another doctrine, so that's why I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. You go to Ephesians 2, we kind of maybe start putting the pieces together a little bit more. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. The classic passage, right? Even when we were dead... In our transgressions, um, the, the subject is further back, but here it says, He, it's talking about God, made us alive, watch this, together with Christ and raised us up with Him. That's an amazing phrase. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, here's a question for y'all. According to this verse, uh, in Ephesians, the fact that we have been raised up with him, the fact that we have been seated with him, this is talking about a present reality. Notice it doesn't say you will be raised with him. It does not say you will be seated with him in heavenly places. It says you are. You are. That's, that's fascinating. So you're all still sitting here. <laughs> So how can he say you have been raised with him already? Somebody explain that to me. First time it was explained to me by a pastor a long time ago, and I still remember it, it says that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Okay. Salvation is, takes, takes form in all three tenses of the verb. That's good, but it just... But it doesn't explain yeah, it just kind of restates the matter. But how, why is that so? Right? Maybe another doctor. Spiritually, we're finally born spiritually. We're, we're born spiritually, yeah, sure, sure. But why is that so? I mean, we, so? we are in the family. We are adopted in the family. So it's not like we're going to be adopted someday. When Christ died on the cross, he yeah. said it was finished, payment was made, but then when he rose from the dead, then that's when, I guess, it sealed it. It was finally finished. Right. But then that's when, I guess it allows adoption. I guess when you look at the doctrine of adoption and how we are currently at this point in time in the family of God, and because we are in the family of God, we have that position of honor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, this, this boils down to another major doctrine, and that is the doctrine of union. Uh, no, let's not do that. Union with Christ. Right? Folks, uh, the doctrine of union with Christ is perhaps the most important doctrine in all of soteriology. Um, that is at least what one great theologian by the name of John Murray had to say, is that it is so important. See the language there? He raised us up. He, watch, watch this. First it says, He made us alive together with Him. The language of with Him. Just that short little preposition. With Him. Right? That is referring to the doctrine of union with Christ. That we have been united to Christ in the economy of God as God sees His Son. He also sees us by virtue of union with Christ. Uh, the fact that God thought of us together with his son. Uh, go back to chapter 1 because this really goes back to chapter 1. This is, all has to do with the resurrection because how is it possible that we are raised with Christ already? <coughs> we know he is raised, but how is it that we are raised? Right? Already. Go back to chapter 1 beginning in verse 3, for example. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there's another critical phrase, right? In Christ, right? Um, I think it's Sinclair Ferguson who wrote a book entitled In Christ. That little phrase. What does it mean to be in Christ, right? I wrote a book in which I made a big deal out of you are either in Christ or you are in Adam, <laughs> right? Either, either Christ is your representative head, either you are united to him, or you are still under the Adamic uh, uh, curse, right? You're either going to be represented by him, but to be in Christ means that you are mystically According to the reformers and the Puritans, they love, I like that word, but it scares people today. What, what they meant by mystical union with Christ is they meant something like spiritual union with Christ. They're not talking about mysticism. They are speaking of something non-physical. They're saying that there is a glue, there is a bond that puts us together with the sun. And what is that bond? What is that, that glue that unites us to him, inseparable, indissoluble. We cannot be separated from Christ, right? It is the will of God. It is the mind of God. It is the desire of God. It is the decree of God. That's, that, that's where we're at in here in chapter 1. He chose us in Christ, and then he says, just as he chose us in him, there's another phrase, in him, that's another way of speaking of it, before the foundation of the world, right? So before you and I were even a thought, um, if you were chosen by God, you were chosen by virtue of your connection, at least in the mind of God, that he saw you in connection with his son. That means in connection to everything that the son would do, his life, his death, his resurrection, right? The salvation, the atonement, um, his person and work, God saw us together with that. It's really fascinating. It's kind of mind-blowing. It's a little hard to wrap your mind around. 
But that's what the Bible teaches. Anybody have any questions about any of that? No, there's a lot there. No, no stupid questions. A- anybody can ask any question. I really want you guys to get this. I mean, the doctrine of union with Christ means this, that nothing good comes to you from the hand of God apart from Christ. Everything that will ever come to you in the Christian life that is from his hand for you, that is good for you, is because of Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So that means by virtue of your connection to him, right? So you had better be connected to the vine. (laughs) You better be abiding in him. You better have life in him if you want spiritual blessings to come to you from God. Does that also kind of show him as the mediator between us and God as well? Yeah. So everything is through Christ. Yeah. Yeah, amen. With him as the mediator. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we're, we're caused to be born again because we're in him. We've been made alive, regeneration again. We were raised with him. We are seated with him, which basically means that because we are one with Christ, wherever he sits down, we sit down. Isn't that glorious? Think of the, just think of the marvelous reality of that, right? That when we go from this life to the next, right, we are, we're not going into an unknown world. We're not going into an unknown future. We know exactly where we're going. We're going to be wherever he is. <laughs> That's why Jesus says, where I am, there you may be also. Right? Because we are so inextricably connected to one another. Wherever Christ goes, we go. Whatever he inherits, we inherit. That's why we're fellow heirs with Christ. This doctrine of union with Christ is everything. Meditate on it. Meditate on it. It's very important. People get tired of me talking about union with Christ. Because I love it so much. Um, what about some of the moral implications of this? Let's, let's, let's turn to uh, Colossians, please. Colossians Oh, boy. I'm just looking at the time here. Oh, boy. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, right? Some of the moral implications of the resurrection, which means that because of the resurrection, we are united to the resurrected Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so what? That's the question. So what? Now what? So what in the 21st century? So what when I'm on my way to work? So what when I'm on my, you know... At my house. So what when I'm struggling in the home and the marriage and the family and the finances? So what? Right? Well, I think Paul gives us the so what. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Our whole Christian life hinges on this. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. See that? So this is a foregone conclusion now. You have been raised up with him, with Christ. You know, some people might make a mess out of this verse and they think, well, that just means that you're inspired by Christ. <laughs> no, it means nothing like that. It is talking about the fact that in a spiritual way, we are connected to the historical event known as the resurrection. And because of that, he says, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Isn't that glorious? Um, that is uh, seated at the right hand of God. Anytime Christ, you see him seated at the right hand, right hand of power, 
right hand of majesty. The Bible has different ways of talking about this. That is a reference back to Psalm 110, which is the most often quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And then it says, Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Isn't that amazing? It's basically calling us to be who we are. Right? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Try to unpack that. I can't with five minutes. I can't. But it's worth looking into. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. See, see the eschatological, like you said, John, personal eschatology? There it is right there, personal eschatology. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. This is our future. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So the fact that you've been raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, the fact that when he returns in glory, you will be in glory, all of that should translate into now live as an otherworldly person, right? Live as a residence of heaven, not earth so much, right? I really believe this is where the theology of Paul comes from, where he says in, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Make use of the world, but do not make full use of it, right? What is he talking about there? What a, what a weird way to live, right? He's just basically saying, be in the world, but don't be of the world. Right? Don't set your hope fully here. When you see your neighbors just giving their lives to a consumer-driven life, Right? Finding all of their identity in their house, their cars, their possessions, all of that. Do not do that. Don't find your identity in those things because you're not of this world. And your material possessions do not define you, neither when you have them or when they're taken away. Right? It just really teaches you how to live completely otherworldly, to look at life, to take a step outside of your circumstances, your life, your surrounding, your environment, your culture, and realize that you are truly not of this world. Why? Because Christ has been risen and because we are united to his resurrection. Right? Any last questions before we close? Statements, comments, anything you want me to address? Anything you faced on the street talking about the resurrection? Any apologetics issues? Good. I'm in the room with people that They've got it all together. <laughs> I'm still in kindergarten trying to get in the first grade. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> that's all I got, guys. Let's pray, and uh, we will go to worship. Good study, huh? Resurrection's good. Next week, we will look at uh, the implications of the ascension. The ascension. So let's pray together. Father, Lord, we just come before you now, and we thank you, Lord, for the truth of the resurrection. According to this passage, Lord, it is our life. I mean, I didn't even get to the verse that says, if the resurrection is not true, then we are most to be pitied of all men. Lord, our whole hope hinges on the vindication of the Son of God as he's been raised from the dead, risen to newness of life and power so that we could have new life now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you renew us in this way. Help us, as Paul says in Colossians, to set our minds on the things that are above. And when we find ourselves thinking too much 
about the earth below, the world below. Father, would you please lift up our countenance and help us, Lord, to consider the heavens. Help us to consider the risen Christ, Lord, so that we could have our lives properly reoriented again around him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.